0: In terms of the environmental movement, what do you think is missing most for people of color being involved? I have my own ideas, but would love to hear about what you have to say.
1: (laughs) Um, I think missing most, from my perspective, is definitely knowledge about it. Um, I actually am looking at going to grad school for sustainable development, and one of my coworkers who happens to be Latino was like, what is that? And the biggest thing I interact with people of color is, what in the heck is sustainable development?
0: Sarah Fye is proud to support the Wasteless Podcast. Sarah Fye is the Brooklyn-based experiential events center, inviting you to experience a fully immersive environment, including 360-degree visuals, a resonating sound floor, and the one-of-a-kind chakra-aligning elixir bar and lounge. Book Sarah Fye for an event, recording session or a free consultation and join serify for live shows seraph i.org and serify social on instagram twitter and facebook welcome to the wasteless podcast our podcast spotlights people and organizations in the zero waste sustainability and grassroots activism worlds Our mission is to share these people's stories, create connections and opportunities, and have a blast while doing that. Wasteless is a nonprofit that works with young people and their communities to plan and implement sustainability projects. We envision a world where there is no waste, and people are happy to live on our planet. We're here to get to the heart of the issue, be intellectually on point, and of course, have fun. Our guest this evening is Megan, and I would love to hear a little bit about the work that you're doing, and in particular, the work you're doing in NYCHA communities. NYCHA, for those who are unfamiliar, stands for New York City Housing Authority. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for that introduction. I actually work for a property management firm. that is Pinnacle City Living in Hope Gardens Bushwick Development. Many of NYCHA's properties are now undergoing rad conversions throughout New York City because, unfortunately, the New York City Housing Authority cannot afford to maintain their properties anymore. So I actually started back in June of this year when we were starting with the lease signings. And I started with um, making sure that tenants were aware of what the changes would be, which was supposed to be minimal and making sure that everything would still be whatever their rent was and everything would remain the same. But it's been a pretty interesting process, especially with the stories I hear from residents about how bad are the conditions of the properties are
0: in. Right, and from someone who's not been in a NYCHA property, at least that I can formally remember, a lot of the issues that I think of when I think of NYCHA were this winter in New York City, a lot of the boilers out of commission, people without electricity and heat, things like that, asbestos and the huge lawsuit that's going on there. What are some of the other things that are going on in these properties, in these communities that might not be evident to people just looking at them or reading about them?
1: Uh, Let's see. I probably rattled off a list right now. Let's do it. Um, (laughs) One of the first things that shocked me was during the lease signings, that was sort of like my introduction as to how neglected buildings had been. One resident had told me um, her parents had went for eight years, eight winters without heat in their apartment. And according to New York state law, heat and hot water are actually mandatory. I was like, what do you mean? Eight years and you're still paying your rent. No heat, no hot water. If it rains, there's flooding in the basements. Many residents have reported having... Um, large amounts of mold in the apartments, but throughout the city, throughout other developments as well, in Brooklyn, Manhattan, all five
0: boroughs. So there are a lot of unlivable living circumstances going on.
1: Oh yeah, it's horrible. And it, you would think like, okay, well, it's the projects, like you probably heard stories maybe if you grew up, especially near the projects, but to actually work in it and listen to the stories that residents are going through it's like, wow. I had no idea, like it really was that bad, the conditions that they're living in.
0: There's just so much going on and I would even think that these people would be having conversations with lawyers or officials because, I mean, I was sitting in on a law school class this week, and if the conditions are bad enough, you can leave. And that's the conditions for a suit, at least. But it doesn't seem to be happening, like there's something missing.
1: I usually try to avoid that conversation because within real estate, there's so many things that you probably can't say because people use it against you, unfortunately. Right. But I finally was just like, so why didn't nobody ever contact a lawyer? Like, you know, did anybody ever talk to some sort of legal representation? And many of the residents actually said we did take uh, the housing authority to court multiple times, and we've actually won many of our cases. One woman had went to court four times for bad uh, repair fixtures, leaks, mold. There was one resident who... um One was who actually used to work for the housing authority and she was just like, but for what? Like, you know, like we would take them to court, we would win our cases and nothing still would be done. Everybody just got used to it. Just like, well, it it is what it is.
0: Yeah, so there's a resignation around it that I'll win the $200,000 case and I still won't have my heat on tomorrow.
1: Yeah, pretty much.
0: And how does that affect people's lives every day? You know, I would imagine that it affects really the mood of people living Uh, there without... Having that foundation, how can you create a fulfilling life?
1: It's a good question. Um, let me see. There was one incident. Before we had, we started in uh, August 1st. That's when my management company started managing the property. But prior to that, there was a two-month period where there was a gas leak in one of the buildings. So National Grid, that came out, they shut off the gas, and it was for two months. Residents were saying that they had a hot plate. Um, provided to them by the housing authority, which is like, okay, sure, like, you know, we've got a hot plate, but when are you finally going to turn on the gas? They gave them a date, said it would be this day. It was within a week of that day, and it was like, all right, so still no update. When it got to that day, it was just like, so when are you going to turn back on the gas? Like, you know, we're low-income residents. We don't have money to be eating out every night or every day. We have families to provide for, and the hot plates that you gave us only provide enough food for uh one burner you couldn't have a two burner hot plate because it was a fire hazard, so for residents who have families of say three or four people, they was like i'd have to start cooking let's say um about now about nine or ten o'clock in the morning in you know, order to have dinner prepared for my entire family tonight." So it's, how do you even maintain a family, it's other residents? They have, um, there's a system where you're supposed to have so many people assigned to the certain number of rooms in a household. I've met some residents who have as many as seven or eight people living in a one bedroom household. And they need a three or four bedroom. And I've met some residents who have a one bedroom, who live by themselves living in a three or four bedroom apartment. Uh, how you create a household or create even your daily li- living circumstance with that situation is beyond me to be completely honest.
0: And it must take a lot of resilience because the story that you were sharing just now, seven people in one room, reminds me of Jewish immigrants living in tenements at the very beginning of the 20th century. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it does take a lot of resilience, Um, especially my position since I sit at the front desk so I get all the angry phone calls (laughs) if nothing gets taken care of. But um, it does create a lot of resilience, and I think the interesting part is how much community was actually made. I think that's how most residents got through it. One uh, particular resident was telling me how she grew up there, and she was just like, it was an apartment. Many residents actually told me this, like, this was the apartments that we were raised in, even though it's the projects. Like, you know, it's, it's what we know as home. Our parents arrived here from, from Dominican Republic, from, from Honduras, or maybe even parts of West Africa, from many immigrant communities, and so that was just how they just made it, there was bonding together.
0: Yeah, and so I guess in that way, tough circumstances make people bond together. And I want to take a look at this from an environmental justice perspective. But when you hear the word environmental justice, what's the first thing that comes to mind?
1: The first thing that comes to mind for me actually is probably public health because that's one of the biggest issues surrounding um, environmental policy in New York City. Um, A few years ago I was working for a real estate office in Williamsburg and one of the biggest complaints from residents was that in that area was that there was no urban green space or any public park and I think Williamsburg had one of the highest asthma rates among children in New York City and it was just like we need something that will offset the dangerous chemicals in the air and help children breathe better and Williamsburg at that time Williamsburg has undergone a lot of gentrification, but there still are pockets of Williamsburg that have low-income housing for many um, Orthodox Jews, many a huge Latino community as well, in different pockets of Williamsburg. And so they're just like, you know, it's fine if you're gonna bring money into the neighborhood, but we don't want to be shoved out at the cost of money being brought in.
0: Right, and there's this idea that I've been toying around with, of even creating community cleanups around these projects and areas, the fear I have is that cleaning up those communities could bring more business and could inadvertently gentrify them. Well, I'm wondering if I'm possible. wondering if that's a worry that's held in any of those communities.
1: I think it absolutely is, especially when you think across intersectionality. Um, I I don't know, is it okay if I say, like, my race and yours? (laughs) Sure, yeah. (laughs) So, like, I identify as African-American based on assuming you're white.
0: I'm a gringo. Oh, okay.
1: (laughs) So, but for a community where it is predominantly Hispanic or predominantly African-American or West-Dating, when they see somebody who doesn't look like them, sometimes it does bring up, oh, well, what are you here to do? Like, you're just here to force us out. And that may not even be the case. may actually want to empower some of the locals who actually live there. I think the trick to it is probably at least for us engaging individuals who live there. That's something I haven't often seen. It's always been even people with good intentions would come in, and they would try to do efforts to change it. But the people in the community have not been involved in those efforts enough, so they just feel like they're just being put out again.
0: Yeah, there's... The, the whole white savior story that racism yeah. and repeats itself from NGO to person on the street yeah and really part of what I'm up to the whole intention is to enroll those communities in that that there's an opportunity for them to have ownership over what's happening and I can't claim to have all the answers that NYCHA is magically going to <laughs> fix all your boilerplates in a day when it hasn't happened for the last oh, 30, 20, 40 30, 40 years.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: But I guess that's the thing, is that is NYCHA becoming more privately owned and administered for that reason.
1: It's actually a compromise partnership that they have. So in my in my particular development, it's um, a private developer still owns and not just still owns the land. They still have like a lease hold over the land, and um, they're leasing the buildings. That in my company is just managing it. I'm not sure if that's the case for other developments because I've heard rumors that the one, uh, Marcy Projects, I believe it's called in Williamsburg, I've heard rumors that that was going co-op, but I've also heard those rumors have been spreading for years, so I have no idea how much truth. As far as waste management, if NYCHA had not undergone the RAD conversion, I don't think it ever would have happened, any sort of sustainable living option for the residents who live in New York City housing.
0: So progress has been made, even if it is...
1: Even if it is slow and it's, uh, it's, it's kind of rough to transition.
0: In terms of the environmental movement, what do you think is missing most for people of color being involved? I have my own ideas, but would love to hear <laughs> about what you have to say.
1: Um, I think missing most, from my perspective, was definitely knowledge about it. Um, I actually am looking at going to grad school for sustainable development, and one of my coworkers who happens to be Latino was like, "What is that and the biggest thing I interact with people of color is what in the heck is sustainable development um i maybe it 's just an American thing because it didn't even hit me what sustainable development was until I think about five, six years ago, when I was in Dominican Republic working on the project, and um, it just happened to be most of my co-workers were white anyway. Right. But just knowledge about what it is and about how it impacts you in terms of public health, like I said, um, environmentally, that part is not
0: there. And I think there's something really to be said about the embodied experience of actually seeing it and being able to touch it and manage it for yourself. I mean, for instance my family in our apartment we're getting one of our bathrooms redone we're getting rid of some stairs and when we were digging beneath the stairs, what did we find but rubble? <laughs> rubble that had probably been there for 30 to 40 years. Wow. And the contractor, Joseph, was telling me this is how people get sick, and they don't know it.
1: Yeah, that is how people get sick. The first thing that came to mind was all the black mold that many residents have been coming and saying, like, so, by the way, there's, like, you know, mold. Um, I, I lost count of how many people told me at least is like, oh, yeah, like, you know, can you guys, when you come in, can you take out the mold that's in my closet? And I'm like, how do you get mold in your closet? Like, where where is it coming from? Like, you know, and they'd be like, oh, yeah, like, you know, I'm asthmatic, or I have a three-year-old, or I have this. I was just like, yeah, that's all major public health concerns. Have you called the Department of Health or anybody? And they were just like, nah. Oh, okay, let's go back to why, yeah.
0: (laughs) There's a listening that nothing will get done.
1: Yeah, that's what I didn't know at the time. But it was pretty much, it was just, we have been complaining for years, and it was just like, you know, we would just learn to live with it.
0: Yeah, there's... This idea that nothing's going to happen. We're going to learn to live with it. We're going to paste the Band-Aid over the mold and hope it doesn't grow. But we know it's really We hope it's not going to kill us, but we really know it's going to spread like gangrene. Yeah.
1: But then there's also a lot of, there's also a lot of distrust that we have to get over. Because many residents, we came into a situation already thinking like, you guys must want us out. And that was actually one of the biggest, It still is one of the biggest rumors that we have to fight is that whenever something's going wrong, we have to constantly remind people we're not here to put you out. But given probably history of low-income housing and gentrification, it's gonna be a while before anybody believes that.
0: No, and I think it's not even about fighting the idea. It's about actually getting exactly what they have to say that there's, I mean, Racism's not dead in the United States. By right. any means, it's alive and growing, you could say like mold. <laughs> but it's more of, yeah, this is like a conversation handed down generation upon generation. It's going to take actually working through those a, conversations.
1: Right, it's going to take a few generations worth of work to actually get to where like we need to be. Um, I was reading about in the Stuyvesant Town area, there was actually installing solar panels. I'm not sure what my company has in store for our development or other developments, but sort of seeing that kind of did give me the idea of, okay, how can we take more sustainable actions, especially since so many of the buildings have been damaged and neglected for years. The boilers are incredibly outdated, parts are damaged. Like, you know, how can we speed up the process to make sure that we actually are eliminating as much waste as possible or reserving energy or bring these, um, these buildings up to speed? <coughs> I had no idea as to how big of an industry real estate really is. And um, it was the idea of seeing how real estate can lead into sustainable development. That was what made me consider, okay, actually you should pursue a career in this.
0: Um, That's very true. Another big opportunity space, I don't know if your company does something different than NYCHA proper does, but what's the waste recycling and compost situation like in these buildings, or your building for starters?
1: I know with composting, that we have not gotten to yet. Waste recycling, as far as I know right now, we have not really up with a really good waste recycling program it's just general okay throw it down the compact and then we'll like sort it through and give it to sanitation so pretty much like most other buildings but that is something that we do need to look into as well
0: and there's actually a great tragedy in this because separating waste is an icky and very imperfect business and a lot of those plastics with those recycling numbers on the bottom, there's number one through seven. Yeah, a- a ab- above <laughs> above two, you can't really count on recycling it. When I was looking at working at a company called TerraCycle out in Trenton, New Jersey, they can recycle most anything, I read some of uh, the founder Tom Zakey's books on the subject. And what he had to say was that those numbers were actually more built for corporate this is where you put it in what box, then rather for human understanding. But, oh. but the, uh, the takeaway message is if you mix five with one, they could all end up in the landfill.
1: That is uh, very helpful. I definitely do see the huge opportunity to educate people because from what I've seen... One of our biggest complaints recently that came in this week was that the um, waste had not been taken up at all. It would just be piled out on top of sidewalks, or it would just be. It just makes it disgusting, and that causes more going rats into public and health things and rats, like that. Rats, yep. roaches, other pests. God knows what else <laughs> will be attracted. One of the biggest issues that we're fighting right now is actually a huge pest infestation. Um, I'm quite sure this happened throughout many different um, housing projects throughout the city, but rat infestations, like, completely where there's holes, I've had people call and say, you know, I can stick my arm in the hole. It's that, it goes that deep. Waste management has probably been very neglected for at least about 20, 30 years.
0: Right. And in any gap, there's a large opportunity. What's your biggest fear about people of color and the environmental justice movement? Mine is that... It won't flourish or people of color might not get involved because through social injustice that's accepted as fact, they might just be trying to survive and yeah. not and not see that as an opportunity.
1: I think my biggest fear is that it won't flourish just because it's probably just going to be viewed as, oh, that's just stuff that just white people do. I think that's what my biggest fear is, and um, as I said before, the lack of knowledge and education. Um, I've had many opportunities not often afforded to people of color, like so, for example, to travel, to go away for school, to practice sustainable development. It seems like it's very commonly associated with people who like net zero lifestyles, veganism, all that stuff is often kind of not really seen mostly with people of color.
0: One of the things I'm considering creating is a whole wasteless certification that if you have the zero waste products that you can get some kind of tax incentive that would actually mark the product down, that would make it accessible to people of color.
1: I think that's an amazing idea, especially for for people of color who live in low-income housing. For people of color, like if their fridge breaks down for, let's say, for a few days, that can make or break their entire budget for the month.
0: Absolutely, yeah. I think really, as Wasteless is beginning to grow working with people of color is not only the biggest opportunity in the United States but it is globally because who's being most affected by flash floods and things like that right by trash being littered everywhere who's living in these areas near to landfills near to recycling plants etc predominantly people of color
1: Especially if, from what I've seen um, looking online through international lens, where you see the amount of trash and how insurmountable it is, where it almost looks like there's just so much trash, so we might as well just leave it. Like, you know, we can't even pick it up. But it usually is people of color who are most
0: surrounded by it. What do you see as possible, having had this conversation in your community and in your building?
1: I think it's definitely possible to actually to remodify the way we look at overall sustainability, whether it be through waste management, food scarcity, uh, whether it be through public health concerns, I think it's just a matter of getting people to actually put the work in it.
0: So, if I told you that I knew some folks who did a cleanup dance party, <laughs> would you bring them to your neighborhood?
1: Oh, I would definitely try. I'd be like, yeah, sure, let's try it out.
0: <laughs> okay, well, we can connect you with our previous guests and uh, as they grow and expand and conquer the world, maybe coming to a community near you.
1: Sure thing. Sounds good. I'm excited. <laughs>
0: Perfect. Well, Megan, thank you so much for joining me today on the Wasteless Podcast. I can't wait to hear about the next great stride in your community.
1: Oh, thank you for having me. Can't wait for the next podcast and to meet some of the connections. <laughs>
0: Thank you. So, so this was the Wasteless Podcast. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter at Wasteless underscore Inc. You can also find us at wearewasteless.com. That's W-E-A-R-E-W-A-S-T-E-L-E-S-S dot com. Thanks for listening.